what we want to do is, if we're going to, to deal with idolatry and support those who are dealing with idolatry, wherever we're at, we need to recognize a few things. We need to recognize that dealing with idolatry requires understanding a little bit about culture. And so that is the, the big idea. Idolatry is really something that is everywhere. Uh, so if we or others are going to deal with idolatry, we have to understand what it looks like and how it shows up. So the big idea that I want to share with this presentation is that a basic understanding of culture of values is necessary for dealing with idols, for toppling idolatry. So now you're going to ask, what does culture have to do with idolatry? So why are we talking about culture if we really want to talk about idolatry in the end? And the answer is that both Culture and idolatry have to do with what people value. So we're going to talk about culture first, give you some background in that, and then jump over to talking about idolatry. So if we're going to talk about culture, we have to understand that a basic definition of culture is it's, it's the common expression of values in a group of people. So a group of people have, have a culture, we would say. They're using these things that we can identify on the surface, the, their language, the, the customs, that the habits that they have, the, the holidays that they share as a, as a group of people, the art that they enjoy, the music, um, the, the, the visible art, uh, all these things are expressions really of, of values that they hold in common. So we have a, a group of people uh, in Tanzania or a group of people in America. They have different customs, different art that they prefer, different music that they prefer, different holidays that they observe, different religions that they all observe, all these things at their most basic level, really are, are values that, they, that these people share. So you can see, if you can see closely enough, these are examples of, of values that could be expressed in cultural expressions, like art and architecture and customs. They could be uh, a value for hospitality, of having guests in, or it could be uh, a value for being creative, or a value for, for being efficient and, and completing tasks, or a value for relationships and knowing people and using those relationships, or a value for simply, simply keeping track of time, or a value of, of being powerful and being influential. These could be things that are expressed in, in values. So you, you have a, you know, um, uh, a uh, holiday that we we uh, we celebrate the Fourth of July. We're we're uh, we're expressing our values when we do that. We're expressing our value for independence, we're uh, and freedom when we do that. And that's why we remember our 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 Independence Day in that way. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about that a little bit. But it's interesting to think a little bit about how you have an, a large group of people that all share not only the same cultural expressions, like the same holiday and the same, uh, the same religion, perhaps, uh, to some extent, but also the same customs and how they invite people into the home, the way that they greet one another. So you have a large group of people that all share the same thing. How does, how does that happen? And the answer is that these things are inherited and they're passed down from one generation to another without even uh, doing it intentionally. Uh, kids mimic their parents, and uh, even if they don't respect them, they, they mimic and they follow the example of their, of their parents in, uh, without even realizing it. So it's interesting to think for us, ourselves, how our culture around us has influenced us and then influenced not only what we do and how we do things, but also what we value. There is an influence there. 
Uh, there was a comic book not too long ago that, that was seeking to examine this. It was a, uh, a Superman comic. Uh, actually, it was a takeoff from Superman. Okay? So uh, the idea here is that what, it, what would happen if Superman didn't land on a farm in Kansas, but he landed on a collective farm in the Ukraine, in the Soviet Union? Okay? So instead of fighting for truth, justice in the, in the American way, this Superman who landed in the Ukraine would, would fight uh, as the champion of the common worker who is, fights for a never-ending battle for Stalin, socialism, and the international expansion of the Warsaw Pact. Culture makes a difference. His values changed, and the way that he worked them out was even different. What his objectives were were affected by the place that he grew up in. That was the idea. We can understand that a little bit. Of course, this is a fictional story, but the idea is, is similar. Our culture, our, our values, the way that we live, has all been affected uh, by the, where we grew up in and, uh, and the people that we were around when we, when we grew up. So culture makes a difference, and these things ought to be recognized even uh, as we consider how we are to, to serve the Lord and then help others that are following Him. So we have a uh, culture is a, is a natural continual thing that's learned, you know, it is in, that is ingrained in us even from, from a young age, and it affects us. Now, I want to give you some examples of the way in which this may work in our life. We can, we can look at it this way. If we're going to examine our, uh, our, our, the culture and the way it affects in our lives, we can look at it uh, by using an iceberg illustration. So I'm, I'm telling you that the things that are easy to see that make us different from other people groups all over the world, those things are easy to see. Those are the cultural expressions that we can identify easily. But they are all expressions of values that are underneath. If we're really going to evaluate what's good or what's right, what's bad about these cultural expressions, then we need to get below the surface to understand what values are being expressed by these cultural differences. So those values are what's under the surface that are not easy to identify. So let me give you some examples. Um, we know that colors can be used to carry cultural values. If you go to an Anglo-Saxon wedding, the bride is wearing white. That's supposed to indicate the purity of, of the bride, the woman standing up there. Now, you could debate whether or not that's true or not, but that's the idea. All right? Is white signifies purity. White also, in some cases, signifies health and hygiene. Okay, uh, our nurses and doctors don't always wear white, but that's sometimes what, what that means. And we know that that's different depending on what culture you're in or where you're from. So uh, that may work here, um, generally speaking, but not everywhere. So if we were in a Buddhist country, we would not wear white or we would not want our nurses and our doctors to wear white. We would want them to wear anything but white because in a, in a Buddhist culture, white signifies death. So if your nurse walked into your room in your hospital wearing white, she had just come from a funeral, all right? Or, or she's a minister not of health but of, but of, of death, and you would wanna, you'd ask for a different nurse. So the idea is that your nurses in those places, like uh, in Nepal, you would want your nurse and your doctors to wear anything but white, okay? So colors mean something, and, it, and your culture that you're in is what defines those things. And they, they can be used to express values. Music as well is a, is a great expression or can be a very powerful expression of values. Um, Finlandia is, a, is, a, is a, not the national anthem of, of Finland, but it's a very important to the Finnish people. It was actually written at the time that they were occupied by, by the Russians. 
And the Russians banned the playing and the singing of this of this song because playing it for them, for the Finnish people, meant a lot to them. It meant their their national struggle as a people, um, their their values as a as a group of people, and then it caused actually started riots. Uh, in opposition to the Russians that were occupying them. So the Russians put an end to that. So this is what that tune, even the playing of the song without singing it, that's what that meant to them. Uh, we don't think of that same tune that way. We actually, most of us are, are familiar with that, but we're familiar with uh, that song because it's been, because a different set of words have been put to the same song, to the same tune. So it's in our, our, our hymnals as Be Still My Soul, the same music with different words, now, for us, since we're not, we're not finished by and large, we're not, we don't have the same background as they do, it means something totally different for us. So if we played that tune for us, we would be, we'd be thinking about other things, given that you're, you're familiar with that song. It's a wonderful, wonderful song. So these are, these are just a few examples of ways in which your culture would help you or would teach you to value different things and then express those in certain ways. If we want to evaluate culture and what people are doing, and understand really what they're doing. And by the way, if we want to appreciate what they're doing and why they're doing it, we really need to think about what values are being expressed by these people as they do these things. Because those can be good, they can be God-honoring, but they can also be bad, because all of this is really an invention of human people. It may be a gift of God, but really these things are all tainted in some way by our sin. So they can go horribly wrong. And that's what brings us to talk now about, about idolatry. So we talked about culture as the expression of the values of a group of people. Now we need to talk about idolatry now as the expression of those values which have displaced God. So if those values have been turned upside down, where, we do not, where God is not the highest and greatest value, if something has displaced that or something else is higher than our, than our value for God, then we can call that thing an idol, and that becomes idolatry, all right? And so that's a pretty broad definition for idolatry, I realize. I mean, I'm setting myself up for the, for the case that, uh, that idolatry is not just sitting and bowing before a, a statue, as we might be have, have thought about it, but it's something more than that. It goes deeper than that. I want to argue the case that idolatry has something to do with worship and those, and those values that are expressed not only when we come together, not only when we're when people are bowing before a, a, a God that is not Yahweh, the God of Scripture, but it also is expressed day to day in day to day life. The first passage in Scripture where God confronts idolatry is in the Ten Commandments. Now it may have occurred and, and happened, and in uh, prior to that it certainly did, but in the Ten Commandments, He is the first time that He prohibits. Uh, directly idolatry and i think that this passage is is instructive for us in recognizing the importance of idolatry and what and understanding what god thinks of idolatry so the first few uh first two uh commandments deal directly with with idolatry and so i'm going to read these uh verses for us verses three through six say you shall have no other gods before me you shall not make your for yourself a carved image any likeness of, of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, 
but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And so there's, there's actually two commandments here, verses 3 and 4, and they prohibit two different types of idolatry. That's why this, I think this, this passage is helpful, is that they show us that there's not just one kind of idolatry. There's one kind of idolatry uh, that, that generally refers to other, other gods. There's a different kind of idolatry that involves making an image uh, in the likeness of animals or anything, anything that's created. And, and again, that falls similar to under the category of the, of the first one, uh, but it also fits other things. Let me, let me explain that here. So this is a chart that shows you that there's different kinds of, different kinds of idolatry. Uh, the first two commandments in uh, Exodus 20 cover this left side where we, where we have literal idolatry. I'm referring to literal idolatry as any, any kind of worship that involves a statue or a, a literal object that you, people are dying, bowing down before. Okay? Now, the thing that we think of most often when we consider idolatry is that top left category where there's a false god and a statue that's present in this, in this worship. So uh, this would be um, uh, Baal and the other gods that are, that are clearly not referred to as uh, not intended to be identified with the God of, God of Scripture. The gods of the nations, uh, the, the god lowercase g that people worship in the surrounding areas of, of Israel, these would, these would fall into this category where they actually had a statue that they were bowing down to and Israel eventually fell, fell prey to that. But then remember that second commandment in Exodus 20, it also referred to making a, an image in the likeness of anything that's been created, whether it's in heaven, uh, heaven or earth or, or below the earth. All right. There was a point in which not only did Israel do just that, but they actually convinced themselves that doing so would be a means by which they could worship Yahweh, worship the God of, that has delivered them out of Egypt. And that happens in Exodus 32. So this is one of the things that God is prohibiting in, uh, in those two commandments. In that case, in that place, in Exodus 32, uh, Moses was up on uh, Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, and uh, the people are down below being frustrated that the process was taking so long. And so Aaron got uh, the people together, well, at least in, in his mind, the people, you know, kind of pushed this on him. He just said, well, we, we tossed all of our gold into the furnace and out popped this idol. Yeah, right. But his words were, and the people's, people's account of that was that they, they, they made this idol, this golden calf, and they bowed down to it in tribute of Yahweh, the God that has delivered them out of Egypt. They said, this golden calf is your God that has delivered you out of Egypt. So it was literal because it's involving a real, a, a literal physical idol. But it's also uh, idolatry because they're attributing a created thing to God. They're saying this is false worship because they're saying that that God, that created thing, that, that golden calf was Yahweh, the one that delivered them out. That's false worship. It's idolatry. It's, it falls under that second commandment of making an image um, after anything and then bowing down before it. So literal idolatry, these are two types uh, of idolatry. But then I think that that passage in Exodus 20 also sets us up for understanding how idolatry works out in the Bible from, from there forward. Because it doesn't always require a physical idol. And we we're picking this up as an implication of this passage. Well, where, does that, where does that come from? Well, the first two verses of Exodus 20, which are, which are not on the screen, set us up for understanding that. Um, 
Verses 1 and 2 say, Then God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he goes into verse 3, giving him these commands. He's saying, he's saying now, he's identifying himself and the relationship that he's had with them. And he's telling them, this is how I want this relationship to work. And he elaborates that in verses, verses 5, and, 5 and 6. I want you to worship me exclusively. And I want you to recognize the kind of God that I am. And I want this relationship to be, to, for lack of a better word, for, be special, to be exclusive. I want you to worship me and me alone. And I'm deserving of that because I'm a kind, forgiving, and jealous God that is going to punish sin and reward kindness to me, worship to, worship to me, being merciful to those who follow me and a relationship with me. And he's setting this up so that the root of the issue that he's getting at with these commandments is a relationship that he wants with them. And the character, the hallmark of this relationship is worship. These commandments deal with that issue. If you break these commandments, you're breaking that covenant, that worship relation, worshipful relationship that he wants from these people. And the first and foremost thing that he wants to address is idolatry in this way. But we know from experience and from, from the rest of Scripture that there are many ways in which people break that kind of relationship with God, where he is the highest uh, of our treasures, that he is our, our greatest, uh, and he holds the greatest place in our affections and in our desires, where he, is, where he becomes the thing that is not worshipped uh, in our relationship with, uh, with everything else that is happening around us and what we're doing in religion, in addition. We know this as is worked out through Scripture. There are many, many places in which that happened. But regardless of, of how it looks and how it appears, the root of the issue is exactly the same. It involves treasuring something that God created over or in place of the one who created it. The one who wants that kind of relationship with us where he is treasured more than anything else. Regardless of what it looks like on the, on the surface, it can be called idolatry. If it involves uh, a worship of a, of a physical item, like an idol, then we can identify it. We can point it out. But again, the root issue is, has to do with worship. But there are kinds of idolatry in which the same thing happens that don't involve a golden calf or a totem pole or some other kind of physical thing that we're, we're, we're telling us ourselves that it is a, a god, a deity that is, that is helping us or blessing us or cursing other people. In this case, we're calling it figurative. We're calling it figurative because it is uh, involving a non-physical idol. Well, but as we know, money can be, be regarded as an idol itself. And we know this probably most clearly from Matthew chapter 6, where, where Jesus is, is giving, using some of the same language in this chapter. He's using language that refers to worship. And he's, he's using that. I'm saying that because he's using the word serve. And he's using words that refer to, to our heart and our affections and our, and our love. So he's dealing with our, our worship. And he's wanting to instruct us and help us to understand that we are going to serve one or the other. You can only serve God, first of all, or, or serve mammon, money, most of all. One is going to take the pride of place in our life. So don't be deceived. Don't think that you can have both as the highest value in your heart. One is going to trump the other one so that you're going to love one supremely and hate the other one or, or vice versa. This is at heart, at its, at its basic level, 
It is a matter of worship. It is a matter of values. It is a matter of what we serve. We're going to serve God or we're going to serve money. So he's, he's instructing us in a way that shows us that we can be easily deceived about this, isn't he? We can be tricked about it. He says, don't, don't follow so much what your heart tells you to do, because nobody is going to admit that I'm serving or I'm worshiping money. You remember in that passage what he tells us we should look at so that we can know our true, the true position of our heart? You remember what he says? He doesn't tell us really to listen to our heart, but in order to understand where our heart is and where it's going, really, those are his words, what does he tell us to look at? People, I know people are whispering and I just can't hear it. Your treasures. For where your treasures are going, where your treasures are, there your heart will be, are his words, or similar to it. If you really want to know what direction your heart is heading, you watch where your money is going and where, what coffers it's being funneled into. That helps you objectively understand where your heart lies, where it's directed, what are true values of it. Uh, similarly, then he goes on to talk about your eyes as a, as a metaphor for, um, I think, an easy way, and this is probably debatable, easy way of understanding what he's talking about, I think, are, are, your, are your emotions, your reactions and your responses, different things, can help you to understand where your heart is. Again, because your heart can deceive you in these matters. So if you want to understand where your true values lie, look and watch for how you, how you react to things and how you respond to things. If you are responding in anger, really off the cuff, quickly, before you can even think about it, that ought to say something about where your heart lies and what you truly value, what you truly treasure. All right? There may be no idol, a physical idol, like a golden calf in sight, but you may be treasuring something higher and greater than God, and your emotions can help you to see that if we take the time to look at it and consider, consider those words. In these cases... Idolatry is figurative, but it's still idolatry because we're treasuring something other than God that's higher than him, and, he, and something else has taken the place of it. Matthew 6 is a, is a good illustration of this, but idolatry runs in and throughout Scripture. Um, Romans 1 is a good illustration. Psalm uh, 115, uh, Isaiah 44 uh, give illustrations or, or explanations. We're working out, we're dealing with literal idolatry in those cases. Uh, but 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, Paul's dealing with New Testament Christians that are, that are, that are living in the amongst of idolaters in, in Corinth. And, uh, and he's also working through that issue. In, in all these places, these things can be true. We can, we, can, we can define idolatry the same way. In all these cases, idolatry is, is an expression of the same problem. And that problem is confusing the Creator with something that He has created. And it's expressed because our, our values have got, uh, got mixed up and confused by our own sin. And God's response is the same in every case. Now, it may not be expressed in all those passages, but it can be, it can be found. And that, and that judgment is, uh, a, is very clear, I, I believe, in, in Isaiah 44 and in Psalm 115 and, and in Romans 1. And that judgment is spiritual blindness. So God gave them over, he says in Romans 1, to the desires of their flesh. These people, the Gentiles, which would include us before we, before we were regenerate, we, desired, we decided that we knew better than God. We can 
decide how to live in a way that's better than him, and we can suppress our knowledge, uh, acknowledging him, and suppress the knowledge of, of the Creator, and instead decide how we ought to live with our lives, and then in so doing, abandon him. God responds by giving us over to those same desires, and then we, we fall prey to the consequences of that. And as that happens, as that process happens, you can see all throughout the, all throughout the Old Testament, as Paul is summarizing there in Romans 1, He's saying what happens is that, that people not only suffer the consequences, but they're unable to see spiritual things. They're, they become spiritually blind so that they can no longer acknowledge God for who He is. They can no longer see His glory. Words in the Old Testament, Isaiah 44 and in Psalm 115, is they become just like the idols that they worship. They become blind. They become unable to see true things. They become just as deaf and dumb and unable to answer and respond as the idols that they worship. And in Romans 1, Paul takes that same idea and carries it over to these people that are not worshiping statues and literal idols, but they've worshipped other things. they worshipped other ideals and other ideas. Idolatry is, uh, is the same all throughout Scripture. It is an expression of values, um, just like culture is, but idolatry happens when those when those when those values get turned upside down and where, where our value that should be in God is displaced by a value for other things. So culture is an expression of shared values. Idolatry is an expression of values which has displaced God. So if we're going to understand how we are to identify idols and then deal with them, we have to understand a little bit about, uh, a little bit about culture. The truth is that, uh, that even if we look at... Um, if we look at if we look all across the world at uh, assuming that, that there are idols, uh, that there are, um, there's an idolatry of, of money everywhere in the world, which is probably a, a, a true statement, okay? It comes out in different ways. It's expressed in different ways, all right? Um, so the, the, the thesis is that we need to understand a little bit about cultural values in order to identify those things. So, for, for instance, I'm not going to dig too deep into it, but for instance, um, um, there's uh, one example would be uh, that tipping or bribing people looks different in different in different cultures. Okay, so uh, perhaps our love for money, our supreme love for money, could show up at a at a dinner table when we're at a restaurant, and we refuse to give somebody that would otherwise deserve it. Would be it would be a culturally appropriate for us to give a generous tip in this situation, and we decide that we don't want to do that because we want to hold on to our money. That would be one way in which. Our idolatry, our love for money, is expressed in that way, a simple way. Um, however, in, uh, in, in Africa or in other third world countries, it would be looked at totally different because there's a different cultural custom for tipping and for giving, giving people money. Another example would be perhaps if, um, if, in, uh, if in this country it's wrong to pay a politician money in advance of them giving a service, if we want them to process our application for a visa or a passport or, uh, or citizenship, and we want to, to speed the process along, we'd give them money, but that's illegal and it's wrong. All right? It would definitely be wrong here, but in other countries, not only is it not against the law, it's, it would be lawful, but it would also be valued. That would mean it would be a positively moral thing. In Africa, in some places... Giving money to a politician or a government worker before they give you the service would be viewed the same way as a tip would be in this country. 
you would give them money because you appreciate their service. You appreciate their work rendering a service to you. Not only would that be appreciated, but it would be valued. It would be expected. It would be a good thing in their mind. It would be a way that you would build a relationship with somebody that could, be, that could go beyond not only that business transaction, but it could be expressed otherwise. But it all depends on your culture. It all depends on where you're at. You have to understand that a little bit to understand really what is sinful and what is not. That's the idea. Now, to talk a little bit more about, about the situation in Africa before we close, I wanted to, wanted to uh, follow up on something that was discussed in, or introduced to you in the, in the video that we showed on Friday, on Friday night. Okay? And if you weren't here for that, that's, that's okay. I want to I show you some of the, the ways in which this works out and where we're going. Uh, this is a, a graph that shows the results of a survey that was done in 2010 that was asking people a few questions. This, this chart shows people's response to uh, the question, what religion are you? What would you, what would you, what would you say that you are? And there are three response, possible responses in this chart. There is, there is Christian, there is uh, Muslim, and then there is African traditional religion, which is animism, worship of spirits, ancestors, and, and inanimate objects, inanimate personality. Um, and so you can see over time, from 1900 to, two, to 2010, that orange line is going up. So that orange line is Christianity. So more and more people are responding to this question by saying, yes, I'm a Christian. So when we get to 2010, when this particular survey was done, 57% of people in sub-Saharan Africa said that I am a Christian. All right? Remember that number. The same survey, the same survey also asked some more questions. Uh, this chart shows their response to the question, uh, do you believe that sacrifices to spirits or ancestors can protect you from bad things happening? So that's, that's animism, pure and simple. Do you believe that sacrificing to spirits and to ancestors would protect you from bad things happening, help, help your life go, go better? And there are, um, <clears throat> notice that the, the results are broken down by country. So the percentage of people in Tanzania that said yes to that question is 60%. So 60% of Tanzanians say that, yes, giving sacrifices to spiritual ancestors uh, would help or pre- prevent bad things from happening to me. You know, so you, you, you can't have both. 57% of the people in the country say, I'm a Christian. At least in our mind, we, they can't say this. 57% of the people in the country saying, yes, I'm a Christian. And 60% of the people saying, I give sacrifices to, to ancestors. Now, now to, to prove the point, no matter how you break it down, there's an overlap there. There's some people that are Christians that are saying, yes, I give sacrifices to ancestors. Uh, we know this is true from other results, but to, to break it down, that's the, the, these, this category up here at the top tells us now of 25% of the Christians in sub-Saharan Africa, answered yes to this question. So you have 25% of Christians in, in all sub-Saharan Africa say, yeah, I believe that if I offer sacrifices to ancestors, I will be protected from bad things happening. How does that happen? How does this person that we met in New Zealand, who is a, who is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, how, she's, how does she believe that, that putting a pillow over this, over this idol would be a bad thing? Well, Short answer is this, that that people's growth in Jesus Christ is a process. It's not an instantaneous change. All those values that are there underneath the surface, they're changing. And then when we stand before Jesus Christ in in heaven, 
when we're completely sanctified, when that whole process is done, He is going to be the most precious thing in our hearts and our values. He is going to be supreme. He is going to be all in all. But between now and there, things are gradually changing. And the way that those values come out can be an expression um, that is unchristian. It can reflect a value that does not put Jesus Christ as the, at the highest point, does not put him as the highest place of our, of our worship and our, and our treasures. I, uh, I hope this, is, uh, this has made sense to you, and I hope that it uh, that is, maybe helps us equip, equip us for not only um, helping those people that are going over and dealing with uh, idolatry overseas, but it helps us deal with our own idolatry. Um, Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories, that we don't need to have a, we don't need to have a golden calf in front of us. Uh, our, our heart finds things that are around us that we want to treasure, that we can treasure higher than Christ. And, and, and this is a subtle, deceiving uh, fact of our lives. We need to regularly examine ourselves to find the idols in our lives and confront those if we're going to follow Jesus Christ and truly treasure him above all things. Uh, the fact is that we can identify idolatry easily when there's a golden calf or a literal idol in front of us. We can easily identify it if we were to go overseas and visit these people and we can see it because it's obvious to us. What's not obvious to us is when we do the same thing or just something just as blatant here, we're just more refined. We're easier at, it's easier for us to hide it because it's acceptable to all the people that are around us. What they're doing over there, that's not acceptable. That's wrong. It's bad. It's obvious to us. But we understand that they don't because it's acceptable to them, not to us. We understand those cultural differences when it's overseas, when it's far from us, when people are different from us, but we don't appreciate it here. I hope this equips you to help you to identify those things, those idols of our own heart. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you for uh, these people, for uh, their love for you, uh, for their testimony and the testimony of this church. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, not only to understand how we are to serve you, but uh, how we are to love you supremely so that you may be our all in all, so that you may be the, the greatest treasure of our, of our hearts. And I pray that those wouldn't be just words on our lips, but that would be our, our, not only our, our true desire, but we would understand what that means. We would understand how that works out in our life and, and understand how our, our desire and our love for you affects the way that we use our, our money, the way that we use our, our resources, the way that we have fun, the way that we relax, uh, the way that we uh, serve you in the, in the church and the way that we respond to other people. And I pray that we would we would take the time to, to think these, about these things, to, to measure our affections, to measure what is happening in our life, and to guard our hearts so that we may understand what is happening in them, that we may serve and treasure you above all things. And I pray that you would help us to do just that. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.